Hello and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, this is where we explore the practical science of lasting well-being. And if you've listened before, welcome back. When we're presented with challenging circumstances, it's really very natural for us to cope with them through a wide variety of behaviors. Many of these behaviors are pretty healthy, like caring for ourselves by taking a break, going for a walk, or talking things over with a loved one. Some of them are a bit less healthy, like excessive or problematic forms of substance abuse. Many of these coping behaviors have both positive and problematic aspects, and today we're going to be exploring one of the most common of these, dissociation. To help us do that, I'm joined today, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. So, Dad, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well, actually. And as always, I am so deeply glad to be associated to you. (laughs) Well, thank you, Dad. I appreciate that. I am also very grateful to be associated with you, associated to this moment, this experience of the podcast, all of our fantastic listeners that we are very, very grateful for. So before we get into our conversation here, just a quick reminder, if you've been listening to and enjoying the podcast, please subscribe to it through the platform of your choice. Or hey, maybe even leave a rating and a positive review. Or hey, maybe even tell a friend about it. It's one of the best ways for us to reach more people, and we really do appreciate it. Also, you can find us on social media. We're at Being Well Podcast on Instagram, where I post pretty regularly. And you can also find Rick and Mai's personal account on Instagram, in addition to accounts on Facebook and Twitter, and kind of all the things you'd expect. So all that said, here we go. Talking for a moment a little bit about dissociation, if you're not familiar with it. It's normal for people to have a relatively continuous experience of what's going on around them. You can call it reality, you can call it your sense of self, you can call it your experiencing, whatever word you want to use. This normally happens so seamlessly that we usually aren't even aware of it. So while it's normal for our sense of self to like grow and change over time, we develop in different ways, there's usually some pretty continuous sense of who you are that extends into the past in, normally, a largely unbroken line. And in much the same way, our automatic functions like our senses and our memory can create a pretty continuous experience of the world around us right now. When this automatic process breaks down, that's what we refer to as dissociation. So with that as kind of a context for what we're talking about, Dad, how would you describe dissociation to people? I thought your setup there was really great. And speaking a little bit in the language of clinical psychology, to build on what you said, As you put it, healthy functioning involves a continuous real-time associating to both the external environment and to the inner world, including a sense of the layers or depths of the inner world or all the tracks. I think of experience as like a song with five major tracks to it. So there's the perception track, particularly body sensations. Then there's arguably the thought track, including nonverbal imagery, not just verbal activity, there's the thought track. Then we have the emotion track, the third track, passing feelings, persistent moods included. Then we have the desire track, longings, wishes, plans, intentions, motivations, aspirations, purposes, et cetera, et cetera. And then last we have the action track, the 
felt sense in the body of action, including the action of how you're assuming a posture, your facial expressions, or more active forms of action, such as reaching for a cup. All right, so normally we're associated to all that. When we disassociate, I think could be usefully understood almost like three degrees or extents of dissociation. First, completely normal, you're driving along and you realize that you've gone by the freeway exit because you were rocking to that song or solving <laughs> some problem or rehashing an argument with your wife, like me, or something like that. Okay, that's what's going on. Uh, you're just tuning out a little bit. or yeah. and, and some of that's really adaptive where you just kind of check out or you're in this boring meeting at work and you're listening with 1% of your attention. When your name is called, you're then able to recapture the last 10 seconds of the meeting and kind of act like you were there. Okay, so that's level one, or that's one kind. Then we have ordinary but still problematic degrees of dissociation, where, for example, when you enter into certain situations that relate to maybe painful history, and that'll speak to the origins of dissociation that we'll get into and then what we can do about it, maybe you enter into a situation where you're in a group of what seem like authority figures or higher status people, or you enter into, let's say, sexuality, or you're in another kind of situation, and you just feel sort of numb or spacey, not all there. Maybe there's a drowsiness that comes in, a cloudiness of your thinking. You, You could push through it maybe with willpower, but it feels like you're slogging uphill through mud. Maybe also there could be a sense of, just, oh, you know, kind of collapse or de-energizing or, or dispiriting, a slump in your mood. I would think of that as kind of the middle range of dissociation related typically with some kind of history about that kind of situation or experience, either experienced on your part in terms of history or observed in other people or imagined. All right. So that's kind of normal range stuff. I would feel it Characteristically, when I was in groups as an adult, 20, 30, 40 years after junior high school, I'd still walk into a meeting, especially if the people there were kind of high status. And I would just feel as if I were leaving the room. You know, my body was in the room, but all of me was just sort of leaving uh, because those kind of settings in junior high school or high school were scary for me. And I had a lot of painful experiences there, for example. And then to finish here, then we have clinical pathologies that are really pretty significant that are under the heading of dissociative disorders. Technically, to remind people, a disorder is either or both a significant, lasting, problematic impairment of functioning and or well-being, the two together. So someone may like their disorder like a lot of people who are narcissistic like being narcissistic, but it does disrupt <laughs> social or occupational functioning, let's say. Okay, great. So that's a disorder. So what do we mean there? One disorder on the extreme is the so-called multiple personality syndrome or its updated title, dissociative identity disorder. A more extreme, other versions of it are not so much about having multiple personalities in some genuinely meaningful sense, distinct from the ordinary feeling of, you know, they're, I've, they're different parts of me. 
There are different voices inside. There are different feelings. There are different aspects. Sometimes there's conflict among them. What are we going to do? And so on. That's not the same as having a multiple personality kind of disorder. And then there are dissociative disorders where people just are very vulnerable to checking out without saying anything that would be identifying. I had a client who, as very relevant, had a very serious trauma history and childhood, multiple traumas, et cetera, horrible things. And this is a person who, when we would talk, would sometimes almost lose consciousness in the comfortable chair opposite from me and, and kind of slump out of the chair and fall to the carpeted floor. Or one time after an appointment, I looked out the window to the parking lot just kind of randomly half an hour later, and I saw that person in their car with the motor running and a door open. What's the car doing running with the door open? I went down and they were just in the back seat, curled up, kind of in a fetal position. That's dissociation. So, okay, I'll finish with all that. Those are kind of like three ways of thinking about it. We're going to, as usual, not super duper focus on extreme psychopathology. That's really more the territory of actually getting professional mental health treatment. Uh, but I do want to include it. And mainly, let's, we're going to talk about the first and the second level, if you will, of dissociation. Yeah, that's great. And that's great context and also a number of good examples of how different people can experience this in their day-to-day -day lives. To really summarize and simplify kind of everything that we've said so far, dissociation is basically when a person disconnects from something. Yeah, It might be their senses, their thoughts, their feelings, their memory, one of the major features of dissociative disorders and also more casual versions of dissociation, if you want to think about it that way, is a disconnect from memory. You forget something that happened to you. And another way to think about it is as losing your sense of space and time, where you're not sure where you are, or to use two words that you said while we were kind of prepping for this episode, a sense of fragmentation and separation. Those two really stuck with me when you were saying that earlier, and I thought that it was a great way to kind of summarize this whole territory. Well, great. As a funny little side note to kind of speak to something that you were saying earlier, one of the weird features of different forms of dissociation is that a lot of the time when we dissociate, one of our senses might decrease in intensity or many of them might decrease in intensity, but sometimes others can actually increase in intensity almost as kind of a seesaw going up and down. So to use that example you gave about zoning out in the car, often that happens because we're really chewing on some memory or some thought that we're just very identified with in that moment. So we lose our sense of the perceptual space. And a more significant version of this is sometimes seen, as you were saying a little bit there before, Dad, with traumatic memories, where people occasionally report having these very detailed, extremely intense recollections of maybe one sense, but having no ability to perceive the other senses. Maybe they can see a visual image, but they can't hear anything or smell anything, and they don't really have a sense of where they are, or vice versa. So there's kind of a complex interplay of this dissociative feature, and it's a little challenging sometimes, as we were experiencing again when we were prepping for the episode, to put it into a really tidy box. But if you have that experience on a semi-regular basis of feeling a little disconnected from what's going on around you, that is a pretty mild form of dissociation. Yeah, I dissociated in a sense, in that first sort of normal, sometimes even useful way. 
a few minutes ago when we were talking, which is why my response to you was a little delayed, because <laughs> suddenly I began to think about the controversy and the issues related to what's called recovered memory syndrome. Mm-hmm. So I want to do a little bit of a digression on that if I could just... Yeah, okay, go ahead. So it seems really clear that there are many examples in which people who were genuinely abused in childhood, one way or another, and such that there are, let's say, third-person reporters who know that it happened or there was a written record. It's really clear. It really did happen. It did happen. And yet they had no memory for it. Mm -hmm. And that going away from the traumatic episode is protective. So as you've said previously for us, dissociation is a form of coping. It is a form of functioning, uh, the fact that we're capable of doing it. If you imagine how dangerous it might be back in Jurassic Park or on the Serengeti Plains to dissociate, the conservation of that function means it most likely had significant adaptive benefits in certain situations. The problem is it can just go too far. Okay, so there the person is, they're being traumatized, and they just leave. Like their body's there, but they just leave. Okay, the memory is then encapsulated and buried. Or as trauma specialists talk about it, Maybe what's left is the sensory, the sensate aspect of the memory, maybe the emotional aspect, maybe the sense of a frustrated, traumatically frustrated desire to escape that's thwarted. But memory for the situation or memory for the different players in it is lost. So it's like a memory fragment lodged deep in your bowels, which then is a seed of all kinds of dissociative or other problematic kinds of things later in life. Then what happens is a person can actually recover that memory through different means. Sometimes it just starts coming back. Maybe you go home for whatever reason, you go back to visit your hometown 20, 30 years later, and you say, what the heck? And you wander through the halls of your high school, and suddenly you remember this bizarre attack in which three or four people ganged up on you, did nasty things to you and stuffed you into a trash can. And you had totally forgotten it, but that cue pulls it up again. Or maybe you're in therapy and you know that you had something happen in childhood or you know that you really have issues maybe around certain kinds of things like speaking up or sexuality. And you're like, what what is that? And you suddenly realize, oh, okay, something like that happened. That's a predominant kind of phenomenon. There are also instances in which unskillful psychotherapeutic techniques, sometimes involving hypnotic regression, whatever, actually do not surface a genuine, authentically, objectively grounded traumatic memory, but in effect implant a pseudo-memory. And there's also research, Professor Loftus, I think University of Washington, I believe, has done a lot of work where we are suggestible, and some people certainly in particular, are vulnerable to having memories in effect suggested or shaped, which really didn't happen at all. Like you actually didn't find that at a mall, you bought it online or something like that. I'm not so sure that those laboratory studies are that totally relevant to the phenomenon of recovering memories and implanting memories because they're just of a different order of magnitude of intensity. And also to make the point, 
for every unskillful, and there have been unskillful therapist or hypnotist or whatnot, implanting a false memory, false memory syndrome, it's sometimes called, of childhood abuse, there are countless numbers of instances of actual childhood abuse that are either known and never really spoken of, or they happened, but they were buried, and yet still in consequential ways. So we have these two issues. Okay, I get it. False memory syndrome is an issue. On the other hand, we have a vastly larger issue of the mistreatment, neglect, abuse, molestation of people in childhood, some significant percentage of which is buried and yet still really, really happened. Yeah, that's a great summary of a very thorny territory. So thank you for that, Dad. Again, to kind of just emphasize and summarize a part of what you were saying there, there's a lot about the brain that we don't know. And there's a lot about memory function that we don't know. We're pretty sure that people have the ability to repress real memories. That's like a pretty solid finding. We're also pretty sure that it's possible to generate false memories. The dance of these two things, particularly in things like, at the most extreme end, prosecution for a case of child abuse or something like that is a really thorny topic. And there you know, are a lot of arguments and disagreements about it that I am not qualified to comment on, to be frank, and I don't have the informational basis to offer an opinion. But much like you, my suspicion is that, man, for every one case of false memory, there are dozens and dozens and dozens of cases where something bad really did happen to a person and that memory was repressed. Okay, returning a bit to dissociation, you've named a bunch of things here that might cause somebody to dissociate. Specifically, you were talking about traumatic events in childhood, responses to stress. To kind of sum it all up, why do people dissociate? Like, what's the purpose of it? It is a protective function that enables the person to, in effect, escape into their mind while their body is trapped. Mm. So whether it's an animal, and we don't, non-human animal, we don't really know for sure exactly what's going on, but there are many examples where prey animal, like a, I don't know, a, a sort of an antelope in Africa or something like that, is caught by the predator, the leopard, the, the lion, and you'll watch the animal just kind of go limp. And I had an experience of nearly drowning and it's a complex experience, a lot to it. But one of the elements of it, one was that after thrashing in great panic in seaweed, kelp, off the coast of Los Angeles while skin diving with no air supply, there was something that came over me in which I just, a part of me was present, but everything else was gone. The panic was gone. The ordinary Rick personality was gone. The thrashing was gone. A sense of urgency and lack of air was gone. And all there was, was a very peaceful process of slowly disentangling myself from the kelp and then rising to the surface. After which, when I finally cleared the air, ba-boom, everything else came back. So people talk about that. So there's a protective function, right? We escape. We want to escape. We can't escape, but we escape in our minds. And there are ways in which people do healthy dissociation. Like, you know, if I'm getting drilled at the dentist, I really will go to <laughs> Tuolumne Meadows in Yosemite Park and I'll just, I'm in Tuolumne, but you know, I'm in Tuolumne, you know, we just do that. Okay. There's a place for that. So that's its adaptive function. 
And therefore, you see that dissociative issues, dissociative disorders, typically have trauma at their root. Now, it may also be that there are certain personality types that are a little bit more prone to dissociation than others. Maybe people who are a little less glued together somehow in their basic personality. People maybe who are perhaps more prone in general, maybe through ADD, to just spacing out right? They're not necessarily impulsive or hyperactive or stimulation-seeking, but they just tend to go away a lot, you know? And so maybe that person is a little more vulnerable to a dissociative disorder. But that, I guess, that's, I'll finish there. That's a pretty good summary. And I know you've done some real research-type dives here. How would you describe some of the common symptoms or versions of dissociation based on the forces that I just sort of unpacked? Yeah, totally. To add uh, one little additional kind of detail to what you're saying here, there's a little bit of a distinction between dissociation after something has happened, memory lapses, checking out, whatever, and dissociation to protect yourself in kind of a moment of trauma, which is a bit what you were referring to earlier in terms of your experience with the, the seaweed. This is generally referred to as peritraumatic dissociation, and that's what happens when somebody dissociates during an actual traumatic event. And some people, including people like Bessel van der Kolk, who wrote The Body Keeps the Score, believe that dissociation is basically the body's way of protecting trauma survivors by reducing their conscious awareness of what's happening during these highly distressing experiences. So again, just like we've been saying, this just reinforces that dissociation is a coping mechanism. It is not an inherently bad thing. And so I just want to keep on returning to that so that people can have some kindness for themselves when I now list this series of symptoms or kind of common versions of dissociation. Just because you do this doesn't mean that it's a bad thing. It's only a bad thing if it interrupts your ability to function effectively in the world. And that's when we'll start to talk a little bit about interventions. So some versions of this, just blanking out, like Rick was describing with the car drive, you go 10 miles and you blink and you can't remember the last 10 miles that you drove. Daydreaming is also a pretty common version of this where we can think about dissociating from the present moment and as you were saying, going somewhere else in our mind. Another is memory loss of various kinds. Dissociation is commonly associated with memory loss and Again, we have all of these interesting questions about repressed memory and traumatic memory, but it's generally an indicator. If you can't remember specific events or people or time periods particularly well, particularly when you can remember the things around those events very clearly. If, if I can interrupt, it is really interesting that in attachment theory, the development of a so-called coherent narrative about your childhood that associates grounded in actual reality what happened, who did it, how bad it was, and how you felt, and all that. So you have this kind of coherent take on it all that it, we develop over time. That helps people to cope and to heal, even if their childhood was really pretty horrible, that coherent narrative. And dissociative issues disrupt that kind of coherent narrative. Yeah, totally. And that's part of what we were talking about a number of episodes back with Pete Walker on complex PTSD and some of the challenges that people who have complex PTSD or experience similar symptoms, again, kind of on that spectrum 
what those people can deal with. And one of them, a very, very common one, is memory loss of various kinds. I remember someone, a man, walking into my office one time, and I just said, oh, tell me a little bit about your childhood. And he said, I can't remember anything before 10. Ding, yellow flag. Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> oh, okay. It's Again, it's not like something definitely happened that was truly traumatic, but as you're saying... It's a red flag. A it's an indicator. You're like in, in clinical practice, you're sitting in the office. You're like, whoa, okay, let's explore that a little bit. So, all right, returning to this list for just a second longer. Another really common one, feeling detached from your emotions. And this is particularly when you feel like you should be feeling something. You're engaged in some intense conversation with your partner and you just get to this moment where you numb out and you feel like you can't feel anything anymore or you can't take any more information in or you just have to check out. And it's particularly common if your partner responds to your attempt to find distance by pulling you back into the conversation and making it so you can't leave. Can't escape. That's when people commonly experience dissociation. And there is, as you were saying, there's a phrase that's related to that entrapment and defeat. It's a very common trigger for experiences of dissociation. Mm. Another one to get to kind of maybe some more clinically significant indicators, feeling like you're losing touch with your sense of reality. What's going on around you feels very numb or like it's kind of happening to you in a dream. That's when we're wandering into kind of more significant experiences of dissociation. And then finally... People who experience flashbacks, flashbacks, particularly to stressful or traumatic events, are a total form of dissociation. If you think about it, you are leaving the present moment and traveling in your mind to some other moment in time. Which is sucking you in. That's the thing about it. Yeah, it's sucking you in to that previous negative memory. So those are some very, very common symptoms or experiences related to dissociation that a lot of people experience. Do you have anything to add, Dad? I thought that was great. Flagging out-of-body experiences, people have this sense of while the operation was occurring, they were where the trauma was happening, the car accident or the the attack on their body was happening. They're they're watching it from above or far away. That's one example. And another thing I would just add more generally is that it's interesting to think of the swerve in procrastination or avoidance from doing something you know you ought to do. Like I've had issues in which I know I ought to do this thing that would force my head to rise above the weeds and be recognized, let's say, in a professional environment. But there's always something better to do today than write that paper or something or other. And then tomorrow comes in a similar phenomenon because of my own history in groups as a kid, da-da. And, you know, yeah, I've worked with that and I've overcome that, I think, by and large. But still, that would be a way in which a dissociative process would be in the service of avoiding risking the dreaded experience, as we've talked about before, of sticking my head up above the poppies <laughs> and then in the tall poppy syndrome, as it were, you know, getting my head knocked off. So it is interesting to explore the degree to which, if it's real for people, as they avoid something or procrastinate, is there this thing that kind of comes over you, like a sleepiness or a wet blanket or a loss of energy or motivation? It's like the wind is out of your sails, the air is out of your balloon, and you're just kind of 
gone away somewhere. Aha, uh-huh. that could be a dissociative process. That kind of dance of avoidance and procrastination and separation from those experiences is definitely a very felt part of my life. And I think that for a long time, I really struggled with procrastination of various kinds. It's part of why I'm really interested in the topic. And we might create more content related to it in the future, because I think that ways to fight procrastination and to not have that separation from an experience that that causes you pain or to that ability to deal with the root causes of something that causes you pain and therefore you procrastinate around it. It's just such a huge part of, of human development and personal growth. We'll be right back to the show in just a minute, but first a word from this week's sponsors. Terms like the microbiome have gone mainstream, and it's great that there's more awareness about the importance of gut health and how we can support it by taking a good probiotic. Not all probiotics are created equal, and that's why I'm happy to be partnering with Seed. Seed is proud to be backed by science. Lots of science. They collaborated with leading scientists to create their DS01 Daily Symbiotic. It's a broad-spectrum, two-in-one probiotic and prebiotic that includes a proprietary formula of 24 clinically and scientifically studied strains. I take DSO-1 daily in the morning, and as a guy who has taken a lot of probiotics in his life, one of the things I really appreciated about it is it doesn't have that weird probiotic taste. Trust your gut with Seed's DS-01 Daily Symbiotic. Go to seed.com slash beingwell and use code 25BEINGWELL to get 25% off your first month. That's 25% off your first month of Seed's DS-01 Daily Symbiotic at seed.com slash beingwell, code 25BEINGWELL. Work often means hours a day sitting in a chair, and research has suggested that prolonged sitting poses all kinds of health risks. One of the best purchases I've made over the last few years is getting a standing desk. It's absolutely transformed my workday, I totally love it, and I got mine from Uplift Desk. So when Uplift reached out recently to sponsor the podcast, I was totally thrilled. If you'd like to try one out, visit upliftdesk.com slash beingwell for 5% off your order. It's really a great product. I use the V2 two-leg configuration for my desk. That's where I work every day and record the podcast from, but they have so many different options for people. Over a million customers have chosen Uplift Desk for their innovative product designs, free 30-day returns, which includes free return shipping, and a 15-year warranty. Their pricing is also really competitive, and if you're trying to save some money, you can just buy the legs alone. Go to upliftdesk.com slash beingwell for 5% off your order. That's up, L-I-F-T, desk.com slash beingwell. This episode is brought to you by IQ Bar. I'm always looking for ways to get more protein, and particularly more healthy protein, into my diet, and IQ Bar has been a really good fit for me. Start each day right with IQ Bar's brain and body boosting bars, hydration mixes, and mushroom coffees. And today, our listeners get an exclusive offer of 20% off plus free shipping. Just text being well to 64,000. One of the reasons that the bars have been so great for me is because they're entirely free from gluten, dairy, soy, and artificial sweeteners. And you can refuel smarter with IQ Bar's Ultimate Sampler Pack. 
That's seven IQ bars, four IQ mix sticks, and four IQ Joe sticks. And now our special podcast listeners get 20% off all IQ bar products, plus you can get free shipping as well. To get your 20% off, just text being well to 64,000. Get your discount. Text being well to 64,000. That's B E I N G W E L L to 64,000. Message and data rates may apply. See terms for details. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you do if you had an extra hour in your day? We're all looking for more time, but time for what? It's easy to waste time doing the things that don't really matter, and it can sometimes feel like we never have time for what does. Learning what we really value and making it a priority in our lives is something therapy can help us with. As you probably already know, I'm a huge believer in the power of therapy, and working with a therapist has made a huge difference in my life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeingWell today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash BeingWell. To return to something that we were talking about a second ago with regards to these different disorders related to dissociation and you know, sometimes the challenges that we can have on a on a mental healthy platform when we start talking about uh, diagnosing things or pathologizing people in general. One of my kind of pet peeves in this territory is called overpathologizing, and it's basically the ways in which people can really rush to diagnose somebody with something based on either casual observation or a sort of minimal knowledge of this territory. And, and I think that you see it all the time, particularly on social media, where people will rush to be like, oh, that guy's such a narcissist. Or they'll say, oh, you know, that person is really exhibiting a lot of clearly like borderline behavior. And there's a part of me that just kind of wants to go like, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's all slow down a little bit here. So all of these things exist on a spectrum, right? Just because you feel detached from yourself sometimes, doesn't mean that you have what's referred to as depersonalization disorder. And also, in the same way as you were saying before, Dad, we all have different like aspects of the self that can be really useful and powerful to explore. I think about nurturing aspects of myself versus strong and protective aspects of myself, different little characters that can exist inside of me that you can kind of sometimes find helpful to act out a situation as if you were one of those characters that can be a little protective sometimes for people. Just because you do that does not mean that you have dissociative identity disorder. And a really important line, and, and the DSM gets dragged a lot, and it's not the best at everything, but an important line from it is this idea of clinically significant distress or impairment in all of these key regions. So if you're not experiencing clinically significant distress or impairment, you're okay. You probably don't have a disorder. Don't get too freaked out about the stuff that we're talking about here. Does that resonate with you, Dad? 100%. And you're prompting me to reflect on two, I think, manifestations in part of dissociation that are really common. First is the feeling that some people have that they're not in their own life. 
Mm, mm -hmm. Yes, their body is going to work. Yes, they are doing dishes. Yes, they are making love with their partner. Yes, they are raising their kids, let's say, but somehow they're not in their life. They feel as if they're living their life at arm's length in some way. I think there's some line from, maybe it was Ulysses or the portrait of the artist as a young man. I know James Joyce said it. He was referring to someone, Mr. Smith. Mr. Smith lived at some distance from his own body, close paraphrase. And a version of that too is a little bit imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. The sense that somehow you're playing a role, but it's not your real you in the room. That's a kind of disassociating, right? Rather than really feeling like it's your own. And another kind of related version of that, uh, and I can speak of a personal story here, is one in which, whether it's merely metaphorical or actually real in some way, people who feel that they have not fully come into this incarnation. I want to kind of put it that way. And the way I experienced it, and I'll spare you some of the gory details here, is that I was a young guy, mid-20s, and I was in Germany at the time, kind of disconnected and rattled. I was taken out of my very familiar situations for all kinds of reasons, pretty stressful. And I began feeling really pretty bad about life. And I almost abstractly, but there was some traction to it. I thought, why continue to live if I'm vulnerable to feeling this bad? Do I really want to take that chance? Plus, if I knew it was going to go on like this, would I really, really, really want to be here? So it was one of the more soul-searching turning points, actually, in my life, where I, I recall being in a certain place in this in Munich, in Germany, when all this was happening, and I was reflecting on it. And I I got in touch with the ways in which, to what extent it's true, I don't know, but I can tell you it felt really real, literally related to my own birth, that I had not fully come into my own life. I hadn't fully chosen to be here. And so therefore, all my actions were provisional. They were tentative, like someone who has one foot in the pool or leg in the pool. It was still trying to decide. And then I was age 27 or so, 26 or so, do I really want to be in the pool or not, right? And I could say, quite honestly, there was an element of this that that felt somehow it stretched beyond the ordinary Big Bang universe to whatever validity that might have. In any case, it was a real turning point for me where deep down inside, I really chose to be here, to step onto the game board fully. And there was this fundamental inhabiting of my own life in, in, you know, carnate means the body, the carne, you know, the body, you come into the flesh, come into the body and take your stand here with traction um, in the vast park and game board, which includes a lot of crappy places of this life, you know, planet earth. And that might be something as well for people to kind of really reflect on. Have you really landed in this life altogether, or more specifically, have you really landed in the occupational or work dimensions of your existence? Have you really landed in your key relationships? Have you really inhabited your family in whatever role you might have in your family? Right? So I'll just leave it right there, but it's a pretty deep consideration. Yeah, I, I think it's a super deep consideration and a very thoughtful one. And You've already sort of naturally moved into what 
is there to do here, if anything, about dissociation? And how can people come back assuming that they want to? Again, there are protective qualities implicit in dissociation. But assuming that somebody wants to, what can they do to dissociate less or maybe in a more holistic way of thinking about it, do what you're describing and step more fully into the experience of their life? Mm. Well, it's a it's a broad question, and I'm going to aim this mainly at that middle range of dissociative issues rather than deep therapy for people with, let's say, uh, multiple personalities, dissociative identity disorder. And so okay, several things I would just say. First, if dissociation is a means to an end, it's a defense against risking the experience of certain things, by growing resources inside yourself, strengths, psychological strengths like mindfulness or, or you know, an internal core of calm and strength inside and, and the feeling deep. Yeah, really all of the things that we talked about in resilience. Exactly. That whole right. list of 12 key strengths. Yeah. Yep. Exactly right. As we grow those strengths, then we have greater capacity, as Pema Chodron puts it, to bear, to bear our own life without leaving. Dissociation is a kind of leave taking. Okay. So that's one major path for people. And you can walk that path before you even deal with whatever you're swerving away from. You're just growing resources. Okay. Two, mindfulness is a wonderful skill because it enables us to stay present with, but some detachment from and disidentification from what is really painful and difficult. So we can be overwhelmed by our pain. That's not good for us. We can dissociate and numb out and leave our pain. That might get us through, but it's not the best form of coping. Or we can be mindfully present with our pain, yet at a little bit of, with a little bit of space between us and that pain inside so that we're being with it. We don't need to leave. We're fully conscious. We're fully aware of it but we're not overwhelmed by it. So what do you what do you think about that? Those those two things I've said so far. Yeah, I for starters totally agree. I think that just general strengths development also often helps people come into a sense of self-acceptance and self-esteem more importantly. It is kind of a natural antidote in some ways to some experiences of dissociation. Often we dissociate when we are in environments where we do not feel at cause, where we feel at effect, like things are happening to us and we, we just don't have that much control. And the more that we can grow experiences of self-esteem and self-worth, the more possible it is to feel like an active agent in our own lives and also to feel good, as you were saying earlier, Dad, about like stepping into our full power in this incarnation if we feel like we're a good and effective actor, right? It's a lot easier to feel dissociated from, from this life at the, at the biggest possible level. If we feel like we're just not that good, if we feel like we're just not that effective, if the, uh, this just didn't go the way that I wanted it to go and I don't feel great about myself and I feel kind of weak and puny inside, and, and I don't mean that Critically, I mean, that is a very authentic experience that many people have, and certainly that I've had at various moments in my life. It's easy to take a step away from yourself because yourself is not a fun place to be. Yeah, that's really well said. 
yeah. So by making yourself kind of a better home, it's easier to come into contact with that. Yeah. You know, of presence versus absence, right? When we're mindful or when we're associated with whatever our experience is or what's going on around us, we're present. We're present. And what dissociation is, is you're absenting yourself. You're leaving, right? So anything that supports presence, like mindfulness, is helpful. Obviously, with the application of mindfulness to self-awareness, that can be problematic and people need to be kind of careful about that. So, for example, if on the other side of that door is an enormous amount of pain, it's important to resource yourself first before you become mindful of what's on the other side of that door. And there are cases where people uh, were on meditation retreats or even in their living room becoming meditatively, mindfully, let's say, aware of their own interior and maybe opening up some doors inside themselves through, out of which, boom, some volcanic eruptions occurred. So, you know, be careful about this. And if, if a person has a good hunch that they've got some fairly significant traumatic material, let's say, or issues in their own history, be particularly careful with mindfulness-based interventions and make sure you're well-resourced before you kind of step into that, including potentially making sure you're in relationship with a therapist, say. Yeah, and that's a great caution. And to just kind of reinforce what you were saying there, maybe even to use slightly stronger language, every tool isn't for everyone. There are people where mindfulness interventions and meditation practices are just not a very good tool for their unique makeup. I think that mindfulness and meditation is one of the rare tools where, wow, the overwhelming majority of people can benefit from it. I think that that's actually really uncommon to be able to have kind of a one-size-fits-all. But even meditation and mindfulness practice, you know, again, as you're saying, for people who have a really painful trauma history, it's not always recommended because you just have to do it quite carefully. In many ways, mindfulness is kind of the opposite of dissociation. And so if you're somebody who uses dissociation as an extremely protective mechanism to shield yourself from certain kinds of experiences, mindfulness can be in conflict with that a little bit. And often it requires the aid of a clinician or a supportive environment or some other way to regulate yourself in order to be able to apply elements of mindfulness safely and, and skillfully to your own discomfort and suffering to kind of turn it in another kind of way. If you are somebody like that, one way to maybe apply mindfulness or mindfulness-y practices maybe quite safely is to move into the experience of a sense really fully, particularly a sense in the moment. So really feeling the seat underneath you. In a sense that's reassuring, comforting, mm -hmm. or at a minimum, neutral. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You're really seeing the landscape that you're looking out your window at. You're not just kind of looking at it in a glazed way. You're really seeing it. You're really tasting the taste. You're really smelling the smell. However you want to apply this, that can be a way to safely be mindful of an external experience so you don't get really wrapped up in your own internal content and your own internal material, including those kind of trapdoors in the mind that, that you were referring to earlier. That's great. It is really interesting the things that we absent ourselves from. And generally, when people are dissociating, it's often 
their thought processes are often clouded. They'll say that it's like, it's hard to think straight or it felt like my thinking was really sluggish. That's true. But very often when people absent themselves from, it's not so much thought, but sensation or emotion. That's what they check out on, or they absent themselves from desire, going back to those different loose aspects of experience, the five track <laughs> aspect of the stream of consciousness. And so as we try to associate more broadly, there are really wonderful things people can do to get more in touch with their body or more in touch with their deeper layers. And here actually is a moment for me to flag a book from a friend of mine, John Prendergast, wonderful psychologist, non-dual teacher, truly one of the most profound people I know. If I was doing therapy again for the third time, uh, I, I would seek out John, except he's my friend, so I can't. But anyway, that's yeah. that said, he wrote a beautiful book called In Touch about the process of getting in touch with yourself. And other people, certainly Lee Lesser, a wonderful teacher of you know sensory awareness that, that can bring us home to our senses. So that's one pathway. And there are many opportunities for doing that to, for example, just be aware of the feeling of your joints in space. Or if you're comfortable being aware of the breath, the internal sensations of breathing, very simple ones, chest rising, chest falling, a reassuring sense of the ongoingness of breathing. That's a, these are very simple ways. And as we get more in touch with the body, and we're actually, in effect, reclaiming our natural endowment as young children, to be really in touch with our bodies as young children are, that's what's natural. So we're simply rehabilitating or reclaiming our own natural endowment. Also getting in touch with feelings related to simple, benevolent, easygoing things. You know, do you, do you like your dog? Do you are, you are you glad your sports team is one finally? Uh, yeah, totally. You know, uh, when you finally make it to the bathroom, is there a sense of oh, reassurance <laughs> and relief? You know, uh, just simple things. And so focus on those. Remind yourself again and again, it's really okay. The feeling Feelings are okay. They come and they go. You will remain as they pass on by. Then you can get more in touch with yourself in that aspect as well. Yeah, I think that what you're referring to here a little bit, Dad, is just the power of practice. Oh, yeah. Essentially, just saying, okay, if you're somebody who struggles with dissociation broadly, mm -hmm. or if you're in a painful moment and you can feel yourself pulling away yeah. from your sense of reality, one way to come back into association is to find something you really enjoy and associate with mm -hmm. it. You know, whether that's, I, I, there was this, um, I think that she's comfortable with me telling the story, so I'll tell it. My girlfriend Elizabeth was having a not so great day and uh, we were driving to a friend's house. This was some time ago, <laughs> pre-quarantine. And uh, she was just kind of in a bad mood and she really loves dogs. She's a lifelong dog lover. And our friend has this wonderful big dog and she got to the house and she said hi to everyone politely and was perfectly nice. But then she found the dog. She found the dog and she laid down with the dog and she hugged the dog. And she was just like with the dog for 15 minutes. And then, you know, 15 minutes later, she came over to me and she hugged me. And she and I was just like, I could immediately tell that she just felt so much better. She felt so much more in her body, in her sense. She felt regulated. 
it was just a really good practice for her. And it's, you know, it's not a coincidence that Elizabeth is in an MFT program and studying somatic psychology. So like she used a practice because she knew it was a good practice. And I would recommend, hey, whether it's a dog or otherwise, whatever it is that you feel really comfortable kind of embodying with, that that can be a great way to pull yourself out of dissociation. Yeah, that's a great reminder of the power of nature. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. In any way, gardening, cooking, being outdoors a little bit, looking out of the window, observing the clouds in the sky, engaging non-human animals, dogs, equine therapy. A lot of wonderful things are done now with horses or rescue animals. As you know, Forrest, one of our favorite interviews was Joanne Cacciatore, right? Just a genius of working with people in this area, including dealing with horrible loss, terrible trauma. She's someone who really also uses non-human animals there, and which have been meaningful for her too. So nature. And then that takes me into a reflection kind of about our nature, in the sense I'm using it here, is to be associated. We are fundamentally connected. We are connected to the air we breathe, given to us by green growing things. We're connected to our parents and our ancestors. We're connected to the land on which we walk. You know, that's truth. That's the truth of it. We are each of us sort of local ripplings in a vast tapestry, vast net or web of reality. And I think as we practice increasingly recognizing that interdependence, that interbeing, whether it's more conceptual, kind of reflecting on deep ecology and quantum physics, or you know, it's more felt somehow, like you're hugging the dog and you realize, yeah, we're cousins, you know, I'm <laughs> home again here. Uh, <laughs> however you do it, that's our true home. Our true home is to be associated. It is to be connected. And in that sense of interbeing is our most fundamental nature and I think our most fundamental healing. Wow. Well, what a phenomenal reflection there, Dad. I really appreciated that personally. And I think you really, you know, you simplified a lot of it there in a really beautiful way. I don't really think I could say anything that's any more touching than that. At risk of having been presented with a beautiful ending and still continuing to go here, one last final thing that I would say that you just kind of reminded me of here by saying that is one of my favorite Rick sayings is this idea of emptying things a thimble full at a time. And you really referred to that initially, I believe, in reference to this idea of everyone comes into the world and they they develop a bucket of tears and we all empty it a thimble full at a time. And one of the ways that we acquire separation from the suffering of that bucket of tears is through dissociation. Hello, it's a protective mechanism. But the more that we can empty the bucket, the closer that we can come to the kind of true contents of it. The smaller that bucket gets, the easier it is for us to come into close contact with it in ways that are really profound and really mentally healthy in the long run. That's super good for us. Yeah, thank you. Well, fantastic. I think that that's as kind of good a place as any to close our conversation here today. So today we talked about dissociation. To summarize a pretty lengthy introduction, essentially dissociation occurs when a person disconnects from their senses 
or their thoughts, their feelings, their memories, or even their sense of identity. A really common feature of it is losing your sense of connection to time and space. And two words Rick used that really resonated with me are a sense of fragmentation and separation. Most of the time, dissociation impacts either our sense of identity or our perception of time. Dissociation includes a wide range of behaviors, everything from just kind of blanking out for a few moments while we're driving to feeling really detached and numb after an intense emotional conversation, all the way up to what are known as dissociative disorders, which include things like dissociative identity disorder, which used to be called multiple personality disorder. People dissociate for a lot of different reasons, and there are a lot of different potential causes of dissociation. It's helpful to know that dissociation is a coping mechanism. This means that it is adaptive and it serves a protective function in the body. Because of this, it's not an inherently bad thing. It's in fact a way for us to defend ourselves effectively from painful experiences. There are many experiences that could occur to someone in the course of their life that they wouldn't really want to be experiencing fully, whether it's just a painful conversation with a loved one or it's a truly traumatic event. We emphasize this throughout the conversation because it's really important to not get too down on yourself here if you're somebody who dissociates frequently. There are versions of dissociation, everyday forms, that are extremely common and not even necessarily a bad thing. Dissociation becomes a problem when it really starts impacting our ability to function in the world or to get as much enjoyment as we can out of everyday experiences. Dissociation often arises as a response to stress, and particularly severe stress. It's very common among survivors of trauma, and it's a common symptom of PTSD or complex PTSD. Dissociation itself can take a lot of different forms. As we said throughout the conversation, some really common ones are blanking out, losing your memory, or feeling really detached from your emotions. From there, Rick and I talked a bit about avoidance and procrastination and how it's possible to think about those procrastination behaviors as having a kind of dissociative quality. And Rick really took this in a direction that I thought was very interesting about how many people to be frank, myself included earlier in life, might have an experience where they haven't stepped fully into this life. They haven't really bought in to this version of themselves. They feel separated or like they're kind of, frankly, half-assing a lot of things, or just like they're not really who they truly want to be yet. And because of that, it's really easy to feel separated and, and just pulled away from the person that they want to be. And this really gets to me to one of the key answers for dissociation and one of the best ways to fight back if it's something that is a real challenge for you. And that's by developing strengths. Self-esteem, self-compassion, self-worth, these are all natural antidotes to experiences of dissociation because dissociation often arises when we feel like we're not in control of what's happening to us. And it's much easier to step into a full experiencing of our lives when we feel like we ourselves are people of value. For really rational reasons, we don't necessarily want to come into close contact with something if it's really painful. So if our sense of self is really uncomfortable, man, of course we're going to dissociate a lot. 
One of the focuses toward the end of our conversation was on mindfulness and how it can be a kind of antidote or at least an opposite to dissociation. There's a lot about mindfulness that can be very, very useful for people who dissociate. For instance, it can reduce our reliance on avoidance, which can in turn diminish our need for dissociation. It also can include a kind of observational quality, which is itself sometimes a feature of dissociation. So there are certain kinds of mindfulness practice that might really feel comfortable or familiar to somebody who dissociates frequently. On the other hand, dissociation, again, is a protective mechanism. It's separating us from something that's painful, whereas mindfulness can really bring us into contact with our experience. So there's a natural push-pull there. That means that mindfulness is not always the best solution for people who have severe experiences of dissociation or people who have a lot of traumatic memories. And if you fall into either of those categories, I would just really caution you around the use of meditation and mindfulness. And if you choose to go in that direction, I would really advise that you use it in the company of a clinician or at the very least, a very experienced and supportive practitioner. We talked very briefly about some somatic practices, including really feeling our experience in this moment, feeling the body, feeling the seat, feeling the chair, moving into a sense fully and without judgment. And those somatic practices have been found to be really effective tools for combating dissociation. There's a lot of work that's been done by people like Peter Levine or Bessel van der Kock on this kind of content, and I would definitely recommend their work to people who are interested in that. Finally, Rick closed with a really lovely reflection that honestly really touched me personally on basically oneness and interconnection and how the underlying truth of life is that we are connected people. We are associated people. We are associated to our environments, to ourselves, to, in the largest possible sense, every other being on this planet. And coming into a real awareness of and appreciation for that can be a really lovely and even a emotionally moving experience, as it was for me. So if you've been enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you would take a moment to subscribe to it through the platform of your choice and maybe even leave a rating or a positive review. It really does help us out. Also, hey, if you know somebody who would benefit from these tools, tell a friend about it. It's honestly one of the best ways that the podcast spreads and that we get new listeners and we love reaching people. A big part of the reason that Rick is still doing this work after 35 or 40 years is because he wants to help people. So if you think it would be helpful to somebody, please let him know about it. If you'd like to support the podcast in other ways, you can find us on Patreon. We're at patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for the cost of just a couple cups of coffee a month, you can support the show. One of the things that I do is I create these very detailed notes and summaries of each of the episodes. They include a lot of work and a lot of research. And frankly, I'm very proud of them. And if you want to check them out, you can find us there. So finally, just to close again, honestly, thank you for listening to the podcast. It really just means so much to me that people go out of their way to listen to this show. And I really just find it truly amazing as I'm just recording into this microphone in my office at home that I get to do this work and that people are really interested in it. So thank you. Thank you for supporting the show. 
We'll be back with another episode on Monday. It'll be with Kara Brock. I'm really looking forward to that conversation. So until then, hope you have a great week.